Hey, this is Elliot Einhorn. Welcome back to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm joined by... Hi, it's Amy Rose Spiegel, TalkHouse Music's Editor-in-Chief. We have a fantastic show for you today, something a little bit different. A very powerful conversation recorded live at Day for Night Festival in Houston last year. Pussy Riot's Nadia Tolokno in conversation with Chelsea Manning. So we know you're probably familiar with these two, but just in case, they're each outspoken activists who have been imprisoned for their anti-government actions and views. Each has opposed their governments, Pussy Riot in Russia, Chelsea, of course, right here in the United States. So for some context on Chelsea Manning, in 2010, she was arrested for leaking war logs, videos, and diplomatic cables to WikiLeaks that exposed the U.S.'s involvement in previously unknown practices and behaviors relating to war and to torture. For the first time, the world saw the specifics about places like Guantanamo Bay. They saw how the U.S. military operated its airstrikes. Just a lot that was really new information to the world. Right. And Manning's leaking of this classified information was hugely controversial. On the one hand, many viewed her as having jeopardized our national security. On the other, many citizens believed that she was shining a light on something that we should have known about all along and on things that should have never happened to begin with. The tensions between those points of view are actually reflected in the way that Manning was first sentenced to 35 years in prison for these leaks and later had her sentence commuted by Barack Obama as one of the final acts of his presidency. After her release, Manning has continued to advocate for government accountability, including a just-announced run for the U.S. Senate in her home state of Maryland. She's also become a very visible supporter of LGBTQ rights, especially in terms of her work supporting the rights of transgender people. Listeners, you may be getting the sense that this is a very appropriate pairing. Nadia Tolokno is a founding member of the performance art slash musical group Pussy Riot. Pussy Riot were famously arrested at the Cathedral of Christ the Savior in their native Moscow for performing an anti-Putin song that they'd written. Now, here's the thing. The Russian government denied them bail, convicted them of, quote, hooliganism motivated by religious hatred since their performance had taken place in a church and sentenced them to two years in some of the harshest prisons in the country. Today, Chelsea Manning presents a talk called We Have More Power Than They Do before speaking with Nadia about prison reform, their experiences in the system, and their work. After this, Nadia gives her own talk. And while on stage, she played music videos to accompany the songs, you really don't need the visual. It's all right there in the music. The lyrics really do speak for themselves. Listeners, I want to acknowledge that both Chelsea and Nadia are not talking about situations that are in the past. They are actively dealing with these things right now. As recent as two months ago, two members of Pussy Riot were announced missing by the band. They'd been detained in Crimea. Now, when I met Chelsea down in Houston, she's so concerned about being surveilled that you can't text her team. You can only send iMessages. And Chelsea actually carries her cell phone in a magnetic purse to block the tracking. The decisions these two have made politically continue to have enormous implications on not only their lives, but on the lives of a lot of other citizens in the places where they live. And we're really happy to be hearing those perspectives firsthand on this episode of the TalkHouse podcast. Should we roll it? Let's do it. I can't see out there, so I don't know if you guys are actually there. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, so uh, this is We Got This. I'm just gonna give a brief talk about how we have more power than they do. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it means that as individuals and as a collective body, 
we have the power to resist and to rebel and to fight back in so many different ways and not just in the ways that are fancy for television or you know that that feel good you know like more si you know simple and straightforward ways but i'm also going to talk very briefly about how we got into the situation that we're in today i'm going to talk about the feedback loop now what does this mean well when we're our, our, we live in these data-driven lives, especially with artificial intelligence driving every single aspect of our lives. You see, somebody like me who's on social media a lot, I might decide I want to tweet something, maybe something funny, maybe something that I enjoy. This is content production, which is what drives companies like Twitter, what drives companies like Facebook, which, and drives the media and it drives the world content production. So when you produce content, especially for social media, it, it drives business. Well, when you tweet stuff, sometimes it upsets people. And the algorithms know that. So when you tweet something that upsets somebody, it boosts the relevance of that tweet or that message or that article or whatever it is, because anger drives hits, anger drives views, anger drives replies, anger drives responses. And the algorithms are essentially focused on continuing to feed into this anger. And eventually, we're just so angry and we're so upset. And this is the feed, what, what is meant by the feedback loop. The feedback loop is where our data-driven lives and our data-driven society have created you know, fault lines. You know, and you see them on television. You see them everywhere you look. You see that you know, our lives have been you know, dominated by slight nudges here and there, where you know, a, couple more, you know, a couple more retweets here, or a couple more likes here, or a couple more you know, page views here, or a couple more you know, uh, hits on like, your advertising. Because that, you know, driving views and driving advertising is what makes these businesses work. When you click on something, they get money. You know, the, the, you know, the advertisers pay money for clicks to be seen by more people. And so when you're engaged in social media, you're basically a slave to, these, to the algorithms that optimize this. And these algorithms, they don't just drive you know, our social media space. They don't just drive our society. They actually drive something even bigger and even more powerful and even you know, scarier and more profound. I'm talking about the police state, the world that we live in, where we have surveillance everywhere. everywhere you, everything that you do, everything that we do in our lives are driven by the collection of data. And any form of data collection is a form of surveillance. It's not just limited to cameras or the collection of intercepted communications or you know, phone calls or phone records, like the, the edgy stuff that actually gets talked about in the media. You know, whenever you whenever you tweet something, or whenever you uh, send you know send a social media post, or uh, and, a, and an advertising company like or uh, Facebook collects it and sells it to an advertising company, that's a form of surveillance. It's just as much a form of surveillance as government surveillance. And so, 
the feedback loop that we were talking about drives an ever-increasing and ever-growing police state because there's more and more data being collected because we're producing more and more content. So now we have police everywhere because we're so upset. We're so upset that we're actually protesting a lot. I mean, imagine that. We get upset about you know, bad things happening in the world. How else do you deal with that in a data-driven world? Well, you protest. But all of a sudden, when we show up to protest, there's a phalanx of police there, especially if it's anything that's not in this, the interest of the state, no matter what state that is. You know? So how did we get here? How do we get into this place where our data-driven society has basically created a police state? And the answer is data collection. And the fact that we provide this data willingly often. You know, uh, you have nothing to hide, some people say. Well, do you even really know what it is that they want or how they use it? And from my own experience, being a part of the military and actually doing this stuff from the other end is that we wanted everything. We learned so much about you or whoever it is that we're paying attention to that we know more about you than yourself. And we can use that. And it's dangerous, especially if we're not, if we're nefarious. And I saw these feedback loops while I was in Iraq. I saw that we would do something and we had the, every incentive to continue to act in a way that we were based on a feedback loop. So we essentially became tied to the feedback loop just as much as any algorithm itself. We became almost a part of the algorithm. Humans are predictable. Our, act, our actions are predictable. What we do, we can base predictions off of. If I know everything about you, I can predict you. And then based on those predictions, I can make my own changes in your activities or, or what you see, like what data you see. Or if in a military context, I mean, I can use that information to, to, to better track you or to kill you. And I think that gets lost. I think that gets forgotten, the distinction between Facebook posts and drone strikes. You know, I had to learn a lot of this because we're not just in the police state, but we're also in the prison state. I spent seven years in prison myself. And it's funny because I got out of prison recently and now I walk out and about in the world and I, you know, I, I honestly expected when I first got out of prison that maybe I would retire, live a you know, quiet life somewhere, maybe, just a, the possibility. But then I got out and I realized that everything I was afraid of and everything that I had concerns about and everything that had been written about had gotten so much worse. Our data-driven society had produced a full-blown police state. I see it every day. I walk down the street today and I just see far more police presence than I ever remember. And if you're in the wrong neighborhoods in this country, it looks the same as a military occupation in a foreign country. Police presence often can be the same as a military occupation. The same tactics are used, the same methods. It's, the, it's my worst nightmare. I came, out, uh, I came out of the frying pan and into the fire. 
So what can we do about this? Well, we have each other. I, it sounds like it's crazy, right? But we don't just, we don't, we don't need be more or better leaders. What we really need is we need each other. And there are things that we can do with each other to be able to better fight and better you know, protect ourselves and to better push back against the data-driven society and the police state. I mean, I ask questions. A lot of my tweets aren't just statements or you know, messages of solidarity or support. Sometimes I just ask a question. Yeah, and like sometimes it's a deep existential question that doesn't have an answer. Like imagine a world without prisons. Imagine a world without borders. Just ask yourselves, are these things that we assume that we need in our society, do we actually need them and can we live in a better or different society? Just step outside of those bounds a bit. You know, we're not limited in our possibilities and in our opportunities and in our ways of structuring our society. You can also share, you know, your emotions and your love and support with one another. Listen to each other. Give people empathy. You know, we have each other and we can empathize with each other. I, I came out of prison and I, I have been leaning on people for support this whole time. Um, many of whom are trans, like me. It's not just limited to that. But I need it, I really need them. You know, I've, I've spent hours, you know, crying since I've been out of prison, just not sure of what, who I am or what I'm doing. And so I lean on them. I lean on my friends, I lean on those closest to me because that's who gets me through at the end of the day. You know, it's certainly not what, what I see on Twitter that gets me through the day. We can also talk about fighting back. That, that one's a little bit more obvious. It's where, it's where I guess we started. But there's more ways to do that than just, oh, well, I'm gonna show up and protest, or oh, I'm gonna vote Democrat in 2018, or something like that, you know? There's different ways in which we can actually resist. One of the ways in which we can do that is we can firmly decide what we want to support. Our, every a, one of our actions can be viewed through the lens of as being a political agent on the political stage. We're not limited in our political acts as political agents to just voting in a poll booth. Like, that's not the only thing that we can do. It's not the only act that we have. It's not the only power we have. And we don't just have to do things. We can also not do things. You know, boycotting is just as effective as, as supporting somebody else. So, I think we need to decide what, like, who do we want to support? What do we want to do? How do we want to resist? And the answer is, it depends. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on the situation. It depends on the context that you're in. There's no one size fits all. And we all have to figure this out. We have to figure this out together. Because a few times in our history, somebody's come along and has been like, I have the answer. And like usually, People listen to them and then you realize that they don't have the answer. So the real, the real answers that come for, for dealing with our you know, issues in society actually come from our communities. They come from the people that we already know, the people that are around us. You know, you know, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of talking, uh, especially in the university circuit, uh, workshops with students. And if there's anything I've learned, it's that 
nobody in these communities has to be taught how to organize and how to deal with things. You know, these people are not looking to think tanks for the answers, unlike our political class in this country in particular. You know, they look, they look to each other and they already have the answers. They've already identified what the problems are in their society, in, in their particular sector of society, and they're ready. You know, they, they're ready to go. They've, they've identified it and they have the answers. But many of us are not listening. We keep looking for something bigger or we've been like expecting a miracle to happen. It's not gonna happen. We have to do it ourselves. Each, each and every one of us. And you know, I'm not trying to be not, not hopeful or anything like that. Because I mean, one of the things I learned is that, especially in prison, I learned that hope doesn't come from somebody else. Nobody can give you hope. Each and every one of us, every single person in this room already has hope. It's already inside of you. It's deep down inside of you, even if you don't think it's there. I found it. I can't tell you how to find it. It's just, I know it's there. It, and it got me through and in prison, which is a community, prisoners are a community. I depended on my community when I was in prison. I depended on other inmates. The prison is not out there to help us, a bit like the bigger you know, sections of society. You know, they're not here to help us, they're here to take advantage of us, take our money, you know, they want our advertise, you know, they want more clicks on our advertising. But in prison, it's much more overt and it's much more direct. There's a form that you have to fill out to get rations every month in the prison that I was at. And if you failed, even if you filled it correctly and it got lost, oh well, you didn't get anything. You didn't get your toilet paper. You didn't get your toothbrush. And this would happen quite commonly. They don't care. They're like, oh well, you know, the rule says you have to fill out the paperwork and you didn't do it right. Otherwise we would have it. And we, would, we did, we did, we did fill it in. So we would have to like pool our resources together and solve this problem. You know, we, we, have, we would lean on each other for things like toilet paper, basic necessities that the prison sometimes wouldn't provide on, you know, whenever it was needed. This is, I mean, that's more of a logistical thing, but we also need each other because, you know, in prison, like people leave, you know, your family forgets about you. You get lost, you get left out which is why it's so important to remember that prisoners need support and they need love because they're not getting it. They're getting it from each other. We're getting, you know, we were able to give it to each other as a, almost like I dare, dare I say family some, some of us felt like because we're around each other all the time, 24 seven. We depended on each other, especially to get through it. And I miss them. That's power. I think it's really important to remember that we have hope, we have each other, and that we got this. It's really hard to remember that. And I wanna just thank everybody for coming out here. I wanna thank my assistant who really got me through some really tough times when I was in prison. She sent me letters. And that's the kind of support we need to give each other, is the support that we're not getting. And, if, and it might sound silly, but I mean, if you, if you if, just find a prisoner and write to them. It, it'll mean a lot to, to that person. Even if it's just one letter to one person, 
it's going to mean a lot to that person. And prisoner support really matters. It got me through. I got many, many letters, and it really got me through really tough times. And it got, it got so many of us that were in prison through tough times. And I'm going to talk with Nadia here in a minute. Uh, and it's, you know, she's, she's told me the same thing. So thank you. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Thank you for coming and listening to us. It was amazing. It was an amazing speech. Um, I was actually stoked when I uh, talked with you on the phone and I found out so many similarities be between our experiences. Though we spend time in um, jails that are belong to different empires. Yeah. It looks like uh, empires really have the same methods to work with the people who are criticizing them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of the stories that we shared were very similar to each other. And I was, I was struck by how similar it was. I wouldn't, like, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting. But, you know, prison society transcends cultures, transcends times. It's, uh, I read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, uh, and I, I was, was surprised. reading him too, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. I had no idea that nothing's changed in prisons. They're exactly the same. They just, they just got better at surveilling us. There's fewer blind exactly. spots. I love that you, uh, the thing that you said about solidarity. And I was thinking about it a lot after we had our conversation. It looks like we tend to forget about the importance of solidarity in our everyday lives. And in prison, you just simply don't have an option to forget about the importance of solidarity because otherwise your life is on stake. You, yeah. you can lose your life, literally, if you will not share warm clothes or food or, you know, as simple things as tea bag. And, yeah. And um, in real life, it's so easy to just um, get back to your comfort zone, even if this comfort zone is shrinking every day yeah. because of surveillance, because of inequality, because of police state and political yeah. oppression. It is shrinking, but you still have this comfort zone and it doesn't let you go and speak out. It doesn't let you go and commit a political action no. because you still feel like, okay, there is a place where I can be safe, under my chair, under, under my table, I want to hide. Yeah. But, I've, done, I've done that myself, you know. But actually, prison can be a really inspiring thing if you, if you treat it in the right way, I guess. And you somehow figured out how to do it, you know, how, how to live through it with um, understanding that it can be useful in your future life. You can learn some things from prison. So I was Absolutely. trying to um, remind myself here that we really do need each other. And every time when I want to hide in my bed, I'm saying to myself, no, I need to go out of my comfort zone and reach out to this and this and this person. Yeah. Absolutely. What's up with prison reform in the United States? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um... Do you, do, can we expect something good happen? And I know Donald Trump is in office right now, so it's, it, it looks really ugly, but... Well, I mean, you know, this, I mean, at both the state and federal levels, um, I, I, I hear a lot of prison reform arguments that are like, well, maybe we should have more gay correctional officers or more, you know, like more women prisons, like bigger women prisons. And it's just like, it's, it's not really reforming an issue. It's just exacerbating it, but in a way in which it's easier for, for people to support. 
you know, I, I, don't think, I don't think you can reform prisons. I think prisons, and especially because every time I know I talk you're to, abolitionist. Every time I talk to people, especially from like different countries, I'm like, oh, they're all the same. I had, you know, like there's no, there's no better prison. We shouldn't have more or better prisons. One of my like rhetorical questions that I throw out there is like, imagine a world without prisons. And you know, like it's possible. No, obviously there's a lot that goes with that. You can't just, you know, there's not an easy answer to that. It's not a simple answer, but it's more important to ask that question because I think, you know, I think that a lot of people that are expecting prison reform in like an incremental sense are not, they're boxing themselves in from the, from the get-go as to what the possibility space is on how to make things better. You know, every time when I hear things like, oh, it's impossible for us to reform prison system because we don't have enough money in our government or something yeah. like that, I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, you have so much money to steal, steal from us, steal from oil, steal from gas. Like, Russia is, uh, the Russians could be one of the most prosperous uh, country on earth. If, I know. Uh, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be that corrupted. Um, so one, one of our minister. Uh, of, from our government, he's flying out his dogs on a private plane. So we have money for that, but we don't have money for prisoners. And uh, I totally agree with you. We should reduce the amount of uh, prisoners because like, most of people, they end up in prisons just because they didn't find themselves in, in life. And um, we do have our own war on drugs, unfortunately, in Russia. So the, the biggest amount of women who I met in prison, they were in prison because of drugs. Yeah. And definitely you could find another approach to people who, who use drugs. And I'm, I'm for legalized, by the way. And, um, right. you know, another big group of people who I saw in prison, they ended up in prison because of domestic violence. And uh, we don't have any special law to protect people from domestic violence in Russia. More no. than that, in February of this year, our government legalized domestic violence. So right now, you can easily beat your wife or whoever you want in your house and yeah. you will not be prosecuted for that. Yeah. So all these women, their crime was just like they, after dozens of years of domestic violence, they took knife and you know, harmed or killed the person who violated and abused them for years. Yeah, and you know, I've, this, this is something that you know, has happened a few times in the US as well. What about culture in prison? Did you, did you have um, access to information? Because uh, all my inf access to information was heavily censored. Yeah. So I couldn't read political magazines uh, and I had to put them in, in, in you know, different holes of my body in order to bring them to me <laughs> yeah. and, and share with my fellow prisoners. Yeah. And um, I actually, uh, explored um, the very big importance of information when I was in prison because you know what every time when I was able to bring these magazines yeah. in prison um, you know after reading one or two political magazines sometimes it could turn person's life there yeah. oh I didn't know about this and this and this abuse of our government yeah yeah and you know that that well it's not as full, you know like out, outright you know full-blown censorship there there is you know there's definitely censorship of prisoners outgoing in, you know, in the United States. And certainly in my experience, like there was a lot of material that was, that was of a political bent that I couldn't get access to because it, of the title, because of the, what, was, what was in the title. For instance, you know, whatever it was, whatever political ideology it was, if it, if it was even just a history book, as, as long as it had like a certain word in it, they would you know, pick up on that word. Like a, a good example of a book that could easily get blocked in prison was the autobiography of Malcolm X. 
Like that's a that's a book that's really easy to get blocked in prison because you know it's like and they, they they couch it through like oh well people who are gang members they they have this book and like they just like use these crazy security concerns and you know justifications of like past you know like expressions by previous prisoners in history and by precedent so it's viewed through this lens of like safety and security. And it, like they just—it's become this umbrella, this envelope that includes so much. It's used as as you know, whenever you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and it's it's one of those situations where you know, if you're a prison censor, everything looks like something that needs to be censored. Yeah. And and a lot of like some prisons are done by hand, so they're like somebody actually goes through and reads stuff. It's not automated. You know, so they have a they have an incentive to censor a lot and to justify the fact that they that they have to be there to censor them. You know, to make sure that they have a job. Um, yeah, one of my censors they even told me that it's impossible to write Putin in in all my correspondence. But you know, it's always important to know that there uh, there is a possibility that there could be a, a good cop. I mean, I, I know it's really rare, but it's possible. So I did have a really good sensor. And so I got stickers once uh, from my support team and uh, they said um, censorship kills. Yeah. And um, nice. I, was, I was confused when I got it because I had to open the letter from, from my supporters uh, in front of her. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I, I mean, I knew that she's a nice lady. So I didn't want to, to you know, make her feel confused or something. But she just started to laugh so hard. And she was like, you totally can get it. And you, can, you can take it, the yeah. stickers. But can you, can you let me have two of them? I want to put it on my wall here in my prison office. Yeah, nice. <laughs> That's one way to get around it. And, um, you know, I, I saw other people who weren't completely blinded or who didn't walk without ears and they still was, were trying to support us even if we're, we were just prisoners and they were prison guards. So I think it leads us to another important topic for me today that we need to try to find a way how to talk with people with different views. Yeah. Because, you know, possibly uh, because of social networks, because of the social bubbles that we're living, we yeah. are forgetting how to talk with people of, uh, who doesn't share, don't share our ideas yeah. and who don't necessarily share our ideology. Yeah. So when you're in prison, you again, you're forced to talk with people who are like, he's supporting Putin. And maybe you yeah. have to talk to somebody with opposite beliefs. But then you see how step by step you can turn them and you, and you can understand them and yeah. you know, establish this dialogue, which is really important to, for the peace and society. Yeah, I certainly remember that in prison, we, we often wouldn't agree on everything. But we had to get along with each other. So there was a certain amount of... Like one of my mantras to myself was, I don't care who you are or where you're from or how you got here. All I care about is how you treat me now, today. Not two weeks ago, but you know, right now. And so as long as I'm viewing things through the lens of like how we're interacting now, we were able to get along and a lot of us learned how to do that. So we wouldn't hold grudges. You know, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for people to get into an argument or a fight and then get over it. You know, you could get over it and move on past that and then even be friends afterwards. 
you know, a lot of people that became friends after a few years, they fought or they argued or they didn't like each other for a couple years, but then they moved on and like they saw past their differences. And like that's possible in a space like prison because you're around each other all the time. It's like a, it's a terrible place. I'm not like saying that it's good in any way, I but know, it's yeah, a we've place been talking that you like... can learn things about humanity and learn things about each other in a way that we don't actively do sometimes. We do sound like now we're promoting prison, but I, I think we, we uh, like the point of our discussion yeah. is that we gotta find these um, ways how to interact with each other and find compromise without necessarily going to jail. Because yeah. you know, sometimes you need transgressive experience in order to get revelation. And it looks like we got these revelations, but now uh, I guess our job is to share these revelations and um, you know, it definitely shouldn't go to prison, nor to Russian, nor to American, because it sucks. Yeah, it sucks. It's, it's not good. And you know, people, it's viewed as like a, as like a one-stop solution to everything. Oh, lock, lock them up, lock, lock her up, lock him up, like whoever. It's, and it's even become like this political slogan. That scares me. You know, like us throwing people away in prison is, should be viewed as a bad thing and something that we should avoid at all costs. I hesitate, you know, especially whenever some people that I know are like, oh yeah, let's we'll just, you know, throw them in the gulags or them in prison or whatever. And it's like, just because you disagree with somebody on a point, you know, doesn't mean that you get to throw them away for the rest of their life. You know, I've lived that life. Like, it really sucks. And, like, I can't support that. Uh, but yeah, I had a suggestion that every judge and every cop and every prosecutor has to go to jail for at least two months, you know, as a part of their practice. That would be great. In university. 15 days, 15 days. And, and I think things will change very quickly. I got it after two months, you know, when I, uh, after two months I understood that it's really can last long. Yeah. Because for, first, for the first two months I couldn't believe myself that yeah. I'm here. I still was, I still wasn't fully engaged yeah. in everything that surrounded me. But it, yeah, I, I, they need to understand how time goes in prison. Yeah. It's so different. One day is not one day. One day here you, you, can, you can talk to your friends, your relatives, your um, phones, you have your job, and there every minute lasts forever. Yeah, it does. And it just goes on and on and on. And I, 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 and I accept it. Like I was like, oh, I'm never getting out. And that's a scary place to be. You know, I, I accepted that for the rest of my life I was going to be living like this, or at least the, the rest of my like youth and i mean i didn't expect to be out here certainly i'm about to turn 30. my birthday is in two so years i'm so happy to it's have you years, here and, to meet you. <laughs> and i never thought i'd be here i never thought i'd be on a stage like this so yes i'm super happy to be here with chelsea <laughs> and i'm super happy to be here with nadia oh Thank you. Hi, again. My name is Nadia, and uh, English is not my native language, so I'm sorry for my English. And um, I will use notes sometimes, but I think I still need, uh, I still know more words than your president does, so. <laughs> Um, I've been asked uh, quite often recently, uh, why aren't you leaving your country? Aren't you scared 
and I'm saying like, yeah, so if I will live in my country, I will go say to America and I'll have, who is my president, Donald Trump? No, thank you, I, I don't want to do it, so I, I, I'll better stay in Russia. Um, a little bit about accidents and about power of accidents. We created Pussy Riot actually by accident because um, we were trying to prepare for a lecture um, the night before the lecture, you know, we never prepare to lectures in advance for some weird reason. But we promised to deliver a lecture on punk feminism. It was uh, a gathering of political activists um, in Moscow in 2011, a um, few weeks after Putin announced that he will go for his third term. And everybody understood that it's not going to be easy. It's, uh, we will have repressions and um, we understood that we need to make this lecture. Um, so. Like seven hours before the lecture, we understood that there is no such thing as punk feminism in Russia. There is punk, great punk, by the way, Krasdanska um, Barona, you should all listen to it. And, you know, there is feminism, obviously, big tradition of Russian feminism, but there is no punk feminism. And we were always inspired by Red Kills movement, so we decided to make an homage to um, Red Kills. And uh, so we thought, like, uh, what's the other way to call a girl? Maybe in more derogatory way. And we, we decided to call ourselves Pussy uh, and um, obviously Riot, because we always wanted to connect. Uh, we wa always wanted to work on contrasts uh, and um, something that is supposed to be taking and, um, you know, smooth. Um, all of a sudden, it comes together with the Riot, Wild Riot. Anyway, so we recorded our first song in, in a bathroom a few hours before the lecture and uh, we pretended that um, there is a punk rock band, punk rock collective, somewhere from provincial city in Russia that's called Pussy Riot. And um, we created the whole story, we created um, members. Now, um, it wasn't our story, it was somebody else. We were 22, 21 years old at the time, and we said that, oh, he's like 16, 17 years old girls. Then, um, we didn't plan to be arrested, but we were arrested, and um, all of a sudden, the whole world somehow believed that we are actual band. And <laughs> so now I'm talking here at music festival, and more than that, I will have a performance tomorrow. <laughs> At 4.30, um, I believe, um, on the stage where um, real musicians perform. Um, we'll <laughs> so, um, when I met um, Ai Weiwei, um, he told me that we shared two things, that we are standing uh, out, standing against our governments, and the second thing, that we are fake artists, because you know that's a big thing for Ai Weiwei, and he's definitely an another big inspiration after Riot Girls. So... A fake music band. In order to create art, you shouldn't feel like you are too cool to fail. And I'm failing all the time. And um, people are being disappointed with me all the time. You know, we just um, played a couple of gigs in uh, LA and people were like, oh, yeah, but we thought that it will be like a bunch of girls with guitars. And, um, you know, we were playing with genres all the time. We're, we're, we're fucking mess, messing with my, ourselves. And I think for me, punk is um, a state of mind when you constantly surprise people around you and yourself. 
every day uh, we're trying to write a new track and like, today we're performing an opera genre and tomorrow we're performing a classical music and uh, day after tomorrow it will be a gubber piece. Um, it gives you special freedom when you're approaching music and politics from the point of art and from the point of uh, conceptual art in particular. And I explored the beautiful world of conceptual art when I was uh, 14 years old and I understood that I will never ever be able to live without conceptual art. Because when you, it, it gives you total freedom. You can do really whatever fuck you want. And the thing is, genre in music doesn't exist for me because of that. And um, next thing that I wanted to tell you, thank you so much for your support that you gave us when we were in prison. Chelsea, we're talking about it. It's, so, it's such an important thing to remember about prisoners, to remember about those who are behind the bars right now. It's really uh, easy and comfortable thing to forget about them. But yeah, write letters to them, uh, go to court hearings and um, help them. Help those who are in prisons right now. Um, I was thinking why Pussy Riot got so much incredible support. Actually, I feel guilty for taking so much attention as political prisoner because, you know, I felt like I'm stealing from others. And um, coming back to art, I think partly it, be, it happened because we used art as our tool to um, bring political change into life. Because art is something that doesn't have to be translated. Art, you don't have to uh, speak Russian to understand what Pussy Riot is fighting for. Oh, I forgot to play vagina to you. Can we play vagina? Some of you may become somewhat uncomfortable as parts of this film unfold. If you listen carefully, you will agree that the concepts will contribute to the rearing of a mature person I have nine years old girl, um, and she, she's my daughter. It's not her, but I'm really inspired by her in all things that I'm doing. That's why I have a lot of kids in my recent music videos. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's so much fun to perform, you cannot believe it. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk about um, is, is not as pleasant as vagina, N not even nearly as pleasant, it's 
Putin and Trump. Um, so we are living in an era when autocratic trends are spreading as sexually transmitted diseases. Those leaders, they're demanding unconventional love. Um, they're sharing as well desire to silence critics. They don't need voters. They don't need citizens. Uh, they need just cheerleaders. Uh, and the problem is them that they're watering down the notion of democracy itself. Their talking points, their vocabulary, their world order are simply not relevant today, as I think. If you ask me what I would like to say to President Putin, I would tell you that I don't feel like talking to him at all because he's like uh, empty space to me. Putin, the man who is the ideology of Russia today, doesn't have any coherent set of beliefs. Um, so Putin said in 2000, when he just got into power, I cannot imagine my country being isolated from Europe. He didn't mind Russia being a part of NATO. Today, uh, an antagonism with Europe, American NATO, seems to be one of Putin's favorite toys on the playground. As a former KGB agent, Putin simply doesn't believe in beliefs. Everyone who believes can be bribed or intimidated, as he thinks. Money, prison, or a gun can neutralize any conviction. That's why people like Putin, they don't really understand people like us. So we are really uh, we're living in different universes. Because when all investigators would come to us and say, like, okay, okay, beliefs. Beliefs, but you, you you can end up in prison up to seven years, and if you will say right now out loud that actually I do support Putin and I didn't mean what I said in the church, then you will go to freedom right away. We said no, we do have beliefs, and then they go, yeah, but when you will be released from jail, you will be over thirty, and you know now you're nice beautiful little girl, but you know, when you will be over 30 and nobody will want to fuck you anymore. And like, what? <laughs> um, okay, Putin. Putin is an incredibly ordinary, ordinary KGB agent. Um, it's a paradox, but the secret of his success story is him being completely ordinary person. Uh, Putin got his enormous power by pure accident. He was appointed by the oligarchs in 2000, and uh, the oligarchs believed that Putin would be their puppet. They believed it because Putin was a truly unexceptional human being. Putin is pity, uncaring, spiteful, incapable of love and forgiveness, incredibly insecure. He is nervous, especially when he tries to hide his tremor under hyper-masculine bravado. Trust, compassion, and empathy simply don't exist in the world of KGB agents. Stealing money from the Russian citizens is probably the only one real belief that Putin does have. Uh, Putin is professional at corrupting people's souls with material goods, opportunities, and if needed, fear. Good intention and honesty doesn't exist in reality, Putin thinks. A pragmatic, smart, effective player couldn't allow this sort of sentimental idiocy to decrease his productivity. When I'm going through Putin's beliefs and qualities and kind of cannot find any, I 
immediately think about another person, Trump. Putin and Trump do share many things, their business and political connections, as well as being deadly corrupted. There is shared belief that people are motivated only by self-interest. Distrustful of human sincerity or integrity, selfishly calculating their profits from every social transaction. Trump is maniacally obsessed with winning. He is able to simplify the whole wide world to the degrading opposition of win and lose. KGB agent Putin knows that you have just two options. You will eat someone or you will be eaten. In Trump's and Putin's world, we, we don't really care about human dignity. We care about human capital. Because dignity is not profitable. When I turn on the TV, I feel miserable. The universe is falling apart, but I don't know how to keep it together. It's against our nature to be overwhelmed with bad news and not to have the power to fix it. It leads to frustration, rage, and desperation. What every human being needs is to have a set of tools to overcome the horror. Our aim should be to create this set of tools. Um, should we watch Cheka? This is a song... I know I'm interrupting myself here a little bit because I'm coming to another uh, por portion of my little lecture about building alternative institutions. But I want to finish this blog about those assholes with uh, a song which was written from the face of another asshole. He is General Prosecutor of Russian Federation. His name is Yuri Cheka, And you probably know him because he meddled with Donald Jr and he was telling to Donald Jr. that he has some dirt on Hillary Clinton and blah, blah, blah. Let's watch Chayka. Thank you. It kind of sucked that we didn't have an option to uh, turn on the subtitles, but you can find it on YouTube. So basically, um, it's a manual how to steal money from Russian people and get away with it how to torture people, how to put them in prison, and how to be prosperous. And the answer is pretty easy to obey, obey the authorities. So um, the last block, and I have just three minutes for it. Uh, <laughs> it's about building alternative institutions. It's about the way how we can um, resurrect our own belief in politics and uh, believe 
in um, politics in other people who are surrounding us. Because I think for too long, words and deeds were disconnected on the political stage. So too many people are thinking that is, there is no point anymore to undertake a political action. And um, I was talking recently to an amazing political party in Netherlands, it's Animal Party. And um, the woman from it told me that what we are trying to do, to show on the small examples to our local communities, that it is the politics really matters and it, it is really about your everyday lives. So in order to empower, again, this belief, um, people believe in politics, I think we need to make DIY institutions. And that's what we are we're trying to do and we did after we were released from jail in uh, 2014. In the beginning of this year, we started an organization that helped prisoners. It's called uh, Zona Prava, which means zone of justice. And uh, I really adore ACLU. And I think, you know, here in the United States, they gave probably the most powerful answer to Trump. And, um, you know, there are a lot of foundations and charities that are just talking but never do shit. And that's why it's watering down the whole notion of charity, the whole notion of human rights activity. I believe in ACLU because they really they hire lawyers and they help people case by case. And um, looking at them, we, um, with our lawyers community, made this uh, Zona Prava organization that collecting cases uh, and trying to go from their lower court levels to the European Court of Human Rights, helping people to get out of jail or, you know, if we are not able to help them to get out, to at least get better conditions or get medication. Because, uh, The biggest reason people die today in Russian prisons is tuberculosis. And, you know, it's a disease that it's impossible to die from if you are outside of prison. But unfortunately, people are dying from it every day in prison. And um, pretty soon enough, uh, after we founded this Zona Prava organization, we understood that there is no, there is no many outlet that can cover these issues of law enforcement, of tortures of prisoners, tortures in police departments. Because it was 2014, the year when Putin um, clashed down almost all independent media outlets. And uh, we decided, so what if a bunch of punks will try to make uh, a media outlet. Uh, if we will be able to do it, then it means that almost everybody can do it. We didn't have any experience of being publishers or CEOs or something like that. So we just started to collect all money that we're getting from all sorts of gigs or speaking engagements like this one. And we put this money to uh, create a full team of journalists. And now we have 20 journalists are working full-time and um, we somehow became a really influential voice in modern Russia and you know that's the most rewarding thing when um, pro-Kremlin media outlets start to quote your news story stories because they do believe that 
we are really serious about what we're reporting and we're reporting just things that we believe are real and truthful. Um, should, we, should we watch a little bit of Make America Great Again? And, um, and that's it. Trump News Network special report. We are glad to announce billionaire and everybody's favorite Donald Trump has won the presidential elections. We are going to make America so great again. Donald Trump made his first visit to Washington. you want it to be do you know that the world has two sides and nobody is free did your mama come from mexico papa come from palestine sneaking all through syria crossing all the borderlines let down the people in listen to your women stop killing black children Thank you so much to Nadia Tolukno, to Chelsea Manning, and to Day for Night Festival for today's talk. For more incredible TalkHouse podcasts, you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkHouse.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's talk was engineered by Lee Bott and co-produced by Marku Shizumi. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Till then. Do you want to stay in the kitchen? Is that where you belong? How do you picture the perfect leader? How do you want him to be? Has he promoted the use of torture and killing families? Did your mama come from Mexico? Papa come from Paris?